But uh, I'm excited about tonight. I, I hope that you are as well. I've really enjoyed our identity series that we've been going through. I've enjoyed getting into it. I hope that uh, I haven't been too charismatic for some of you. Um, uh, I've been kind of bouncing around a little bit and getting a little bit excited and seeing some exclamation points in Scripture, and I'll show those to you again tonight. But, um, you know, this, this whole idea of identity, we started off our very first night that we did it with a, a postcard that was on your seat, and on that it just said, I am blank. And how you filled in that blank, I don't know. I asked you to put it in your Bible. I asked you to put it with something that you had. To, that way you can continue to have that with you. Because some people probably put something positive. Other people might have put something negative. They might have filled in something that was a little bit different than, than what God would have for us. And what we're doing through this series is we're really trying to fill in that blank that is in our hearts and is in our minds in a way that, that is glorifying and honoring to Him. And, and we find the truth of it in the Bible. We started off with, I am created. And we filled in that blank with created. And as we said, I am created, we looked at it and we said, you know what? We are created by God for a purpose. And if you have a hard time believing that, or if at some point in time you haven't believed that, or even right now you don't believe that, you're either saying, I was created on purpose by God, or I am an accident of evolutionary nature. And the way we view those two things can drastically change the way that we live our lives, the way that we approach anything at all. I watch all the gun debates that take place on, well, on Facebook, of all funny things, because that's where all debates take place at and really make a big difference and change lives all the time. But I watch these take place, and I think, you know, everything that everybody argues about is merely a Band-Aid covering up something that is so much bigger. We have to get to the root of it all, and the root of it all is that life matters. And life matters because it was created by God for a purpose. But if we don't believe that, and we believe it's all this accident and chance, then life doesn't really matter because we're just going to be done with it eventually anyway, and that does, that's all that happens. So where you stand in that changes everything. We started off our series to base it that we are created by God with a purpose. Second week, we talked about the fact that when we are created by God, we actually fall into a fallen nature that comes down from being in Adam, our, our original father, earthly, there it is. It's our ancestry. It's the one that it comes all the way down from. But God, because he created us for a purpose, sent his son Jesus so that we would no longer be in Adam, but instead be in Christ. And that in Christ changes everything. We saw the fact that when we are in Christ and that we are saved by God for a purpose, that we are a child of God. And as a child of God, it changes everything. As a matter of fact, First Peter, and he was writing this letter to guys and women who were confused about what their identity was, where they were. As a matter of fact, it says, starts out the letter saying, to the elect exiles, the ones who have been chosen by God but left out of everything else, living here but not really here. And he says, you know, here it is in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, but you are a chosen race. He's trying to emphasize the fact you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. See, he's writing to people trying to figure out who they are. And those people not only were 2,000 years ago, they're sitting in this very room right now. 
They're outside of this room. They're walking the streets. They're trying to figure out who they are. They're sitting at the balloon fiesta going, wow, this is amazing. Look at all this. But what's the purpose of it all? Why am I here? These are questions that are going on in people's heads. And we're trying to answer that by looking at the truth of the Scripture. And we see that first thing he starts off with saying we're a chosen race or a chosen people, that we are children of God. And as children of God, we are loved greatly by God our Father. And we see this play itself out as 1 John 3, 1 is in there. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and we looked at the NIV version. I generally look at the, the ESV, but I really like the NIV version of this. And this is what it says in there. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Is that how it reads? Is that how we're supposed to? See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are, right? No, because if I'm reading it, and I'm an English teacher, and I get up, and I read it that way, somebody's going to correct me because there's exclamation points, which means what? That's right, it's a little exciting. We're going to a little Pentecostal in here, all right? We're going to do little tambourines and snakes. No, but what we're going to do is we're going to look, and we're going to see a couple of things here. That exclamation point changes everything. That is what we are. We should be excited about the fact that we are children of God. And as we see that, we see a word that is lavished. And we talked about that word last week. The fact that this love of God is poured out on us in great abundance. And that is great and amazing. And we take it for granted. We read it as if there's no exclamation point. We read it as if it's just no big deal. It's a huge deal. We have a great God that loves us, and he's pouring out that love on us. And we talked about the love that he's pouring out, and as we see that we are children of God, and he's pouring out this love, we took a look at the attributes of his love. And I was going to cram them all into one little message, and then I realized we'd still be here if I had done that from a couple of weeks ago, so we broke it up. And as we broke it up, the first thing we talked about two weeks ago was his love is eternal. His love is eternal. Since the beginning of time, excuse me, since the beginning of time, he's loved you, and he will continue to love you till the end of time. Nothing can separate us from God's love. His love is eternal. It keeps going and keeps going. The second thing we looked on that first week is that his love is personal. He didn't just say, I love you. He didn't just say, I'm going to love you eternally, but I'm going to love you from way over here and let you do your own thing down there. No, he loved us in a personal way, so much so he wanted to have a personal relationship with us. We sent his one and only son to die on a cross so that we could live. How awesome is that, that the God, the creator of everything, wanted to have a personal relationship with us. Last week, we started looking at two other points. One was his love is intentional. He intentionally chose to love us. He chose us. He predestined us to be adopted, a part of his family. We looked into 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we looked at Mephibosheth. And as we looked at Mephibosheth, and uh, we looked at him and we saw the fact that he was crippled and he was fallen, but he was in the line of a king. And David, King David, literally came and brought him to the table and said, you will eat at my table always, just like God has chosen to allow us to eat at his table and invited us to eat at his table always, intentionally. We also looked at how his love is purifying. 
And we looked at this fact that it is purifying and that God accepts us where we are, but he doesn't want us to stay that way. He wants us to change. He wants us to be more like him. That's why our slogan is come as you are, be changed, and go change the world. Because we can come just as God has accepted us, but he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to be more like him, and he uses circumstances, he uses situations, he uses all things in our lives to make us more like him. Which leads us to this week. And this week, we're going to be looking at the final two. And the first one is his love is unconditional. His love is unconditional. I think this one, for me personally, is the hardest one to grasp. Of all the ones we've talked about. Now you look at his love is eternal. Wow, mind-blowing. That he's loved us before we even knew we existed. He knew we were going to exist and he loved us. That's, that's huge. Personal, wow. That the God of all creation would love us. But unconditional is probably the biggest one for me to try and wrap my head around. Because as we look at it, and we see that he loves us unconditionally, I put this on my Twitter this week, and I don't tweet a whole, whole lot, but this was one that as I was preparing my message, I went, this is it. While many people love you because, or they love you if, God loves you, period. I thought about that. My People struggle with that. They think they have to earn God's love. They think they, as long as they do this, then. No, God's love is unconditional. His love never fails. That was the second song we sang tonight. And as his love never fails, we can wrap that around our heads and go, oh, yes, I'm a screw-up, but God still loves me. I can do good, and I can do bad, and I can do good again, and he's changing me, and this process is taking place, but as this process takes place, guess what? He loves me no matter what. There's nothing I can do to earn his love. There's nothing I can do to lose his love. He loves me unconditionally. And as we see this unconditional love, Jesus talks about it to a group of people. And we find that group of people in actually Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Excuse me, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Luke chapter 15 or go to your digital device, find you version, and find Luke chapter 15 for me. Luke chapter 15, we're going to take a look at this, and, and many of you probably have heard this story a time or two before. It's probably one of my favorite parables in the Bible. One of my favorite stories that's talked about, and as he talks about it, it's what's called the parable of the prodigal son. And you look at the word prodigal, and the definition is actually being wastefully extravagant. Wastefully extravagant. We always tend to think that prodigal means he's the one that's wandered off. But the definition of prodigal means wastefully extravagant, which means you got a bunch of stuff, and you wasted it in an amazing way. Guess what? There's a lot of us in this room that are wastefully extravagant. God has given you gifts, and God has given you plenty of things that you are wasting extravagantly. So as we look at this, you're going to see this in a whole new light because this is a story, like I said, I've heard lots of people teach it. I've read through lots of books that talk about it. And all different ones kind of point at this one son. But the thing is, there's so much more than this one son in this story and the unconditional love of a father. As a matter of fact, there's three people that are central to the story that we're going to look at today. And the reason why there's three people that are central to the story is because as Jesus is talking, you're going to look at his audience. Just look at the first three verses of the audience that are here. It says this. It says in 15.1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And I always love it when they separate tax collectors from sinners. I think that's just a great thing. Because tax collectors were just so much worse than even being a sinner. 
And, and, and you look at it and you see it, and there's a number of times throughout the Bible that that's the way it breaks it down. But then it says in verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So we see Jesus is surrounded by two different groups of people. You have the not-so-good people, the tax collectors and the sinners, and you have the really good people that are the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're both gathered around, and the thing is is that they're both far from God. It's almost like I've told you over the last few months I've had the opportunity to go out to these church plant conferences, and, and one's been in Las Vegas and the other one's been in Salt Lake City. Well, guess what? This is that. This is that story. This is the ones who are far from God and they know it, and these are the ones that are far from God and they don't know it. Both of them need to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And you see this taking place in this very story. And as we see it all come about, we see these ones that are far from God, they're represented by the younger brother that's in the story, the, the prodigal son. But then there's an older brother in the story that we see that, are representing, that are, 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 is representing these, these Pharisees. And then, of course, there's the father, which represents God. And the way that he reacts throughout the story shows us his unconditional love. And that's why verse 3 says, Then Jesus told them, them being all of them, this parable. We're going to get to it here in just a second, but let's pray that God speaks to us. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came and he taught this. He taught this to people that were far from you, that either knew it or didn't. That either were doing it on purpose or doing it because they were looking for self-righteousness. God, help us as we look at this, and we can identify ourselves somewhere in this story, maybe a past time, maybe present right now, that, God, that we would hear what you have to say about your unconditional love that is poured out on us and lavished upon us as it talks about in 1 John. God, we pray it all in your name. Amen. Skipping down to verse 11, it says this. He said there, there were, was a man who had two sons. And I think that's a very important thing to understand that we miss when we talk about the prodigal son because we talk about the one. But really, Jesus starts out the story that he had two sons. And I think there's a very big emphasis on the fact that he had two sons. And, you know, as he says it, we see that and the, and the fact that God is in the story as well. And then verse 12 says, And the younger one of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, we read that quickly and we read that simply. We look through these parables and we see Jesus teaching, but I think sometimes we forget who Jesus is talking to. Sometimes we forget to look at the audience that is being spoken to, and as this audience is there, you have the tax collectors, you have the sinners, you have the scribes, you have the Pharisees, and anybody else who's kind of around there, but they're all more or less Jewish or understand the Jewish customs. They understand the Jewish ways things happen. And they hear this younger son ask his dad for his property now. Now, I'm not sure if you understand this or not, but, but there is an inheritance that comes down as it happens. Deuteronomy 21, 17 talks about this inheritance that is given. It says this, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. So right here, you have this younger son, who isn't the firstborn, asking for his stuff. Well, because there's two sons, the way they would work out is the older son gets two-thirds, the younger son gets one-third. That's the way it would work out. He gets a double portion, he does not. 
Now, that is all fine and good, except there's one problem. The dad's not dead yet. And this is going to catch everybody right two sentences into the story off guard. Everybody's like, wait a second. You can't collect an inheritance from your dad until he's dead. And if you ask ahead of time, you're basically saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. And he's saying this to his father. And I'm sure that everybody is there, and they're thinking to themselves, well, all he cares about is his dad's stuff and doesn't care about his dad. I'm not sure if you've ever been a part of a funeral before that had family members that fought over everything that whoever died was leaving them. But I, I will never forget the day that my mom called me to tell me my grandfather had passed away. We were driving from here to Amarillo. Phone rang. She said, I just want to let you know that Grandpa John passed away. And in the background, I could hear fighting. I could hear fighting, and you know what was over? A lamp. I had aunts and uncles that were fighting over a lamp. I'm not saying this in a coarse, disgusting way, but the body wasn't even cold yet. And they were fighting over a lamp. And you see this What's important? What is it that draws us into that type of mentality? And we see this younger son doing exactly that, saying, I want my stuff right now. And as he does that, we see the next thing that the father says to the son, which is probably even more shocking to all the audience. It's there because they understand Jewish culture. It says, and he divided his property between them. He divided his property between them. Even the tax collectors and sinners knew that that was wrong because in Deuteronomy, like I said, just 21, 17, it talks about the firstborn right. Well, verse 18 says this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place of where he lives, And they shall say to the elders of the city, This is our son, and he is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. They knew this. So shall you purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Well, they heard it. They feared it. They knew it. It was custom. And you have a story of this son saying, I am rebellious. I don't want anything to do with you. I just want your stuff. So why don't you give me your stuff so I can go do what I want to do? I wish you were dead. And how does the father respond? Probably with a broken heart. I'll divide up my stuff for you and and your brother. I'll divide up my stuff instead of dragging him out. Even though he could have said, you need to get back in line or else. And he would have had every right to do that. Think about the reaction of the people that were listening to the story. Think about the tax collectors and the sinners going, that younger brother, it's me. I'm out here doing my own thing and rebelling against my parents right now, and they gave me the boot, and that's why I'm here. Why didn't my dad respond that way? And the Pharisees were like, man, we're in the shoes of that, that father thinking he should have because these are the rules that need to be done. These guys are responding in two different ways, and this group's taking place. And here's something else that actually uh, uh, you need to kind of hold on to. Because when it says the word property, 
I don't jump into the Greek very often, but as I was doing studying, it was one of the things that kept popping up, saying the Greek word for property is bios, B-I-O-S. Does anybody know what the Greek word bio means? Life. Life. Biology. The study of life. And so we see the fact that there's probably a lot of different words that could have been used here, but they use the word bios, basically saying this younger son is asking for his dad to tear apart his life and give it to him. This younger son is responding in this way. And as he responds in this way, he's saying, basically, I want you to tear down your status because he's probably going to have to sell a big old huge chunk of land to pay this one-third over this way. And what are people known for in that day? Their land ownership. So that land ownership is probably going to destroy part of his status and also the way that he responded to his son because you know everybody has a comment no matter which way you respond. All this group over here is going to say, well, if I were him, I would have. You know, and that's the whole way it would have responded. So his status, his reputation, his land is being cut and torn down. His life is literally being wrecked by his son. And how does he respond? He responds by loving his son anyway. I mean, his son wished him dead. And he's causing this huge loss of honor, this huge loss of respect in the community. How would you respond? If somebody cuts into your reputation, if somebody slams you, if somebody hurts you physically, hurts you mentally, decides they don't want to be your friend anymore, if they unfriend you on Facebook, devastation. Ah. You know, the, the, the whole thinking behind it is, is we generally will get angry or we will retaliate or we will do our best to, to, to really lessen or diminish our feelings so the hurt doesn't hurt as bad. Maybe that first boyfriend or girlfriend you had when you were in high school that, that crushed your heart and you just thought, well, I'm just going to be tougher and I'm going to listen to some song on the radio and it's going to make me feel better. You know, that, that's the, the, the mentality that we have as we walk in. We want to, to make it lessened. And we want to drive a wedge in there. But guess what the dad does? He bears the agony of rejection. He bears it, and he continues to love his son unconditionally. Now, as we pause even just a couple of verses into this, we look at it and we say, that's God. That is how God is responding to us. He bears the agony, yet he continues to love us unconditionally. Let's pick it up in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. Now that word squander is a big one because the Pharisees thought that was a major sin, to not be a good steward, just to squander. And so when he uses that, he knows exactly, Jesus knows exactly who he's talking to. My question is, is why do you think this younger son went out and squandered all he had on reckless living? I think it has a lot to do with our subject we've been talking about for the past five weeks. Identity. He was looking for an identity. He was looking for people to come alongside of him and say, you are so cool because you have all this money and you're doing all this partying and you have this really cool chariot and you have all these things that are, that are just awesome and we're going to love you because of that. We have a tendency to do the same thing, don't we? Minus the chariot. I mean, when we look at it, that's it. Verse 14 When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. You know why? Because all those friends he had that were there to party with him, and the money ran out, they ran out too. 
and he began to be in need. So he went off and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Imagine how miserable he must be at this point. Far from home, far from anything, broke, poor, all the things hungry, just wanting something. There's a little side note I think we need to hold on to right here, and this is something that I think that, that it would be great to write down in a notebook, great to write down in the front of your Bible. Life away from the Father will always leave you miserable. Life away from the Father will always leave you miserable. And my guess is, is somebody in this room, if not more than one somebody, has experienced that very truth. That life away from the Father will leave you miserable. This is what happens in verse 17. But he came to himself, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he comes up with this plan. He wants to tell his dad he was wrong. I was wrong in the way that I did it. I am going to do everything I can to repay you. I don't want you to accept me back as your son. I know that you won't anyway because no normal dad would. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to hire me. And I'm going to live in the city. And I'm going to go to work on your property. And I'm going to pay off my debt by working for you. All that I took for you, I'm going to work and make sure this debt that I've accrued gets paid for. And I'm going to do everything I can. So he arose in verse 20, and he came to his father. Now you got to think as he's standing up and he's beginning to walk, that he's in a far-off country. He wasn't getting into a jet to fly home. He wasn't getting any car ride on the way. He's walking. And you know what you do when you walk and you don't have a, a discman or a iPod in your ear? You talk to yourself. And you know there's this conversation that's going on as he's walking. I can't believe I used the word discman, by the way. But he's, he's walking along and he's going and this conversation's playing out in his head and he's imitating what his dad's going to say and how he should respond. And guess what happens? Exactly what he didn't expect. As he came to his father, it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, which meant that his dad was looking for him and waiting for him. And he saw him a long way off and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. You know what? This is mind-blowing for the audience that's listening for a number of reasons. One, why would he accept him back? Two, dads don't run. A man of status did not hike up his robe skirt and run. Now, maybe a little kid might, maybe a woman might, but not a guy of status. And everybody knew that. So when this dad ran, it changed everything. It showed that I'm going to throw all status aside because I love my son. And he ran. And as he ran, I think this, this whole audience was shocked. And you know what? The son in the story was shocked. So much so that he was like, but I've been rehearsing what I'm supposed to say for the last however many hundred miles that I've walked. I was going to tell you exactly this. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, interrupting, turns to his servant and says, I don't, whatever you're talking about, whatever. Go and get me my best robe. You know what the best robe is? You know who wore the best robe? The father. 
The father says, I am going to give you my best robe, the father's best robe, because you are not a hired servant. You are my son. And as my son, I am going to cover your nakedness. I'm going to cover your rags. I'm going to cover your filth. And I'm going to do this with my robe. And I want you to put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. This is huge. Huge. You know why? Because meat was a delicacy. It wasn't something they ate at every meal. They didn't just run down to Walmart and grab a couple of steaks when they wanted to. They didn't just go into the, the shaved turkey aisle to make sure they had enough for sandwiches. That, that wasn't what they did then. Meat was a delicacy. And when it came to the fatted calf, that was the, the premier meal. So he says, we're going big. And we're not just going to eat. We're going to party with the whole community. And everybody's going to come out, and there's going to be dancing, and there's going to be singing, and there's going to be eating, and there's going to be other things going on. Why? Because, verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So what's Jesus saying to the crowd and to us? When you stop right there, what's he saying to the crowd and us? He's saying, my love is unconditional. My Father's love is unconditional. There is no sin that is a match for His grace. There is nothing that you can do to separate. And it's an awesome picture to see this Father pouncing on His Son, not only before He was able to clean Himself up, but also before He could even get His confession out of His mouth. Do you see that? It wasn't the fact that he waited and said, now, let me hear it, and then go clean yourself up, and then I'm going to give you a big hug, all right? That, that wasn't it at all. He said, my son has come home again. And he went and he wrapped his arms around it. And you know what? God's love, God's acceptance, they're completely free. We can't do anything to earn them. We can't do anything to lose them. They're unconditional. All you have to do is accept it. Now, it'd be awesome if the story stopped right there. Because then they'd be like, whole world, everything, everybody's all good. It's all good. Let's just go. And God loves us unconditionally. But verse 25 kicks in. It says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came, he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. I've never heard dancing at least not from a far-off field. So I'm curious to know what that is and what exactly was going on up in that place. But he called to one of the servants and said, what is going on in there? And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. The older brother was angry. You think at this point in time in the story that the Pharisees might have been angry that this father would throw all the rules out the window and just accept this son who had gone off and squandered his living? You think Jesus might be talking to these Pharisees right now? But he was angry and refused to go in. He was refusing to go into what might be the biggest party his dad has ever thrown. Basically saying, I reject you, dad, and your decisions. Didn't we see that already up front? The one son that seems to get the story wrapped around him, but we forget there's a second one that's in here. And the big brother has his opportunity to disgrace dad, just like the younger brother did. 
So his father came out and entreated him. You know what it means to entreat? Beg. The man of the house. This man with all this stature. This man with, with status in the community and all these things. The whole community is probably there. They see the younger son standing, or the older son standing outside the gate. And as he's standing there, the father gets down on his knees and said, Just come inside and celebrate the fact that your younger brother has come home and that he is alive and he's a part of our family. But he answered his father, Look, look, look you. That's how it's written. Your older brother telling the man of the house, you don't talk to the patriarch of of the family that way. That's not how you respond to him. So Jesus is making very clear here that he is disgracing his father, that he is shaming his father. Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property. Remember how that whole idea of devouring and squandering came up in the, in the first bit? Jesus is talking about it again here, that the Pharisees might respond this way. Who's devoured your property with what? Prostitutes. And as it says that, that's another high sin thing. So not only is he squandering, but he's squandering in an even more sinful way. And it says, you killed a fatted calf for him? Exclamation point. You killed a fatted calf for that fool? I haven't done anything wrong. I've only done everything right. I am following every rule to the T, just like you said, because I need to lift myself up and say, look what I've done. And you killed a fatted calf for him? Who do you think he's talking to? How dare Jesus accept and talk to these sinners and eat with them? How can he sit? Because sitting and eating means you've accepted them. That was the common cultural thing of the day. How can you do that? And he said to him, verse 31, Son, you're always with me. You realize he could have said, Oh, you want to play it that way? Guess who the dad is and guess who the son is? Get out. But once again, Jesus throws out this unconditional love thing because any other dad would have been like, psh, psh, get. And it would have been all okay. But he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Swallow your pride and come into the feast. Guess what happens next? Yeah, Jesus leaves us hanging. That's what happens next. Like, wait, did, the, did, he, did he go in? Did we, and, and we see this, and we see the reason why he leaves it hanging. It's because he's laying out unconditional love. And he's saying, all people have this unconditional love. The question is, is how will you respond? Because he's talking specifically to two different groups of people. Well, in the same process, he's talking to us. How will you respond? These two different groups of people are trying to find their identity. These two different groups of people are looking for their happiness and their joy and their fulfillment in two different ways, either in moral conformity or in self-discovery. Either following the rules and saying, look how good I am, or following absolutely no rules and saying, look what kind of great rebel I am. And the thing is, is that either you're for one and against the other, or you're for one and against the other. That's it. 
I mean, think about even in our own society right now. What's wrong with the world? Well, generally, isn't it the other group? That's what's wrong with the world? All the people who are self-reliant, moral conformists, they think all these self-discovery nut jobs are the ones that have all the problems in the world. Well, guess what all these self-discovery people think? It's all those moral bigots are the problems in this world. And you see that clashing even still today. Both of which are trying to find their identities in what they do. But the thing is, is this. Self-salvation, the moral good guys and the immoral bad guys, they're both in the same boat. They're just on different sides of it. But that boat is going away from God. It's going away from him, not to him. And that actually leads to the next and final attribute of God's love that we're going to talk about. And that's how generous he really is. How generous he really is. It's not about what we do or what we don't do. It's about what he has done and continues to do. That is what it's all about. John 3.16 is a verse that is quoted and known by heart by kids that have been in Sunday school for most of their lives. The thing is that I've always had a trouble with when it comes down to having little kids memorize verses, and I love the fact that they do it, but a lot of times they have no idea what it means. Yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Yay, here's your Bible book. What does it mean? I don't know. I just wanted the Bible book. I want to be able to get something out of that toy chest at the end of the day. What does it mean? What does John 3.16 mean? It means that he gave generously his only son. Why? So that we won't perish. So that we will have eternal life. God gave his only son so you could become his child. God orchestrated his son's cruel and painful death so you could live with him forever in a personal way. That's what God did, and that's what he continues to do. Not only did God forgive your sins through the blood of his son, he also declared you an heir in the inheritance. We read this verse at the beginning of this part of of, uh, I am his child, but it's found in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Dad. We get to call God, Dad. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We get to have the inheritance that is. Now, we look at inheritance now, and we can even look at this story that we just read, that inheritance on this earth is fading, it is fleeting, it disappears, moth and rust destroy. However, 1 Peter 1, which we also read a couple of weeks ago, says in verse 3 and 4, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, God has generously given. And he's generously given us his unconditional love. He has lavishly poured it out on us. Isn't that just an awesome thing to think about? That he's continuing to do this, not because we earned it, not because we're good enough, not because anything else, but because of the fact that he is our heavenly father, our perfect heavenly father whose love is eternal 
whose love is personal, whose love is intentional, whose love is purifying, whose love is unconditional, and whose love is generous. The question I asked you last week, and I'll ask you again today, how will you respond? How will you respond to a God that loves you like that as his own child? And I gave you three words last week. One was trust. Do you trust him? We sang that song. Do you trust him? Give me faith to trust what you say, that your love is great. Remember singing those words? Did you mean it? Give me faith. That's a prayer we need to pray today. Trust him. Obey. Why do we obey? Because we trust him. Because we've given him control. Because we can say it is about you and not about me. I will obey and follow you. I'm not going to obey to earn my way into heaven. I'm going to obey because I'm already on my way to heaven. I'm going to obey because you are my father and you've called me to do this. That's why I'm going to do it. Not because I'm trying to make you love me more. And the third thing is to reflect. To reflect him. To love like he loves to love the down-and-outers, to love the ones far from God, to love even the religious people that drive us nuts sometimes. I was talking to a guy this week, and he reminded me of something he just happened to visit uh, back when we were at Cleveland High School. And he said, I came in one time and heard you say something. And he's since come back. He's been coming for about six weeks or so now. He said, the one time I came when you guys were over at Cleveland High School, you said something that just stuck with me. He said, you said you wanted people in the church that made you feel uncomfortable to leave your purses and things on the, church, on the chairs during meet and greet. And I said, I did say that. And that's exactly what I want. I want people to say, oh, they're in here. I better carry my purse with me. You know, I, I better keep my hand on my wallet. You know, I... I Went on a police ride along this week, and he was talking about how, um, how he likes to go to church, but he always carries his gun because he doesn't trust people in there. I'm like, that's exactly where the people that you shouldn't trust should be. Because they need to hear about the gospel. They need to hear that they are loved unconditionally by God. But so do the religious people, the ones who think they need to earn it. So how will you respond? Trust, obey, reflect. Share the love of Christ with people, with words, and actions. That's how we reflect it. That is my prayer for us today as we close up. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. And thank you for who you are. And the fact that you speak in ways that that transcend generations. This story was written thousands of years ago. And recorded for us to hear in the 21st century. And it means just as much today as it did then. That God, your word is powerful and alive. And it can pierce into our hearts like any two-edged sword. God, I pray that you're piercing into our hearts today because somebody in this room probably has a hard heart from the things that they've done, feeling like they're too far from you. God, that's not the case. And there's somebody else with a hard heart in here saying, look at all the things I've done and I don't really need you. Pierce that heart. Because God, both of those groups are walking away from you. It's not about us. It's all about you and how we respond to your unconditional, generous love.
God, help us even as we sing these next two songs. These aren't just words, but they're praises to you for the love that you have for us, for the way that you've responded to us in kind, even though it was while we were still sinners, far from you, walking away from you, that you sent your son to die for us. God, if there's anybody in this room that does not understand that, I pray tonight is the night they come to you. I also pray, Lord, that if there are people in here that understand it but are not applying it, God, that it would be like soap, that it doesn't do any good if it stays in the box. It doesn't do any good if we look at it and study it. It only does well when we apply it to our bodies. God, help us apply your word to our bodies that we could take it out and go change this world. Pray it in your name. Amen. Maybe down here, right here in the front, I would love to pray with you. If you have questions about who God is, about what he's done, about the love that he has for you, I want to help answer those. You know what? Maybe I don't have all the answers for your specific situation, but I'd be happy to help walk with you until we find them. Or maybe you're sitting there going, I'm the Pharisee. I'm the one looking at all those people that are in the wrong. All those those people that are looking for that self-discovery. I need to open my heart to them and share the gospel of Jesus Christ because even they can be saved because that's who Jesus came to die for. For God so loved the world. That's not just the church world. That is the world that he sent his only son. And the world needs to hear it. So I pray that if you're in either one of those boats, I want to talk to you.